You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Our scripture today comes to us from Isaiah chapter 7. And I like to focus specifically on verse 14, verses 11 through 14, but we're going to be reading a little bit more than that. And I want to set up the scene here first. As we're looking at this chapter, we come across a figure named Ahaz in this passage, and he's a descendant of David. He's a, he's a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. We're a few centuries and many generations removed from David, um, and the kingdom's been split into the northern and southern kingdoms, and so there's a lot going on. We don't have a whole lot to go on with Ahaz and who he was and what, he, what he's done, but we do have two chapters in the Bible, one in Second Kings, one in Second Chronicles, to kind of piece together what kind of king he was for the southern kingdom of Judah. And in short, he wasn't a good one. Both passages will tell us as such. And in our text, God speaks to Ahaz through Isaiah because Ahaz was at a crossroads in his young career as a king. He took the throne at 20 years of age and over his kingship, we are told that he succumbed to worldly ways, relying on his political alliances and worship of other gods. Now, in this passage particularly, he was facing an invasion of two armies that had formed an alliance to team up against the kingdom and take it down. And Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz to offer God's word and guidance for this trial. And so why don't we turn to Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1 through 14. It'll be on the screen as well if you want to follow along. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Jeshub, your, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razan and and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razan. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, 
Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is God's word. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your beautiful word. And we pray that you illuminate our hearts, these ears to our, these words to our ears and our hearts, that you would shape us and mold us to be your people. Be glorified in this sermon today. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been quite a year, hasn't it? I think we've all learned in a brand new way what it means to be with one another. For months, while we were recording services here and watching it at home on Sundays, we were doing that for a couple months, and I had people tell me, it was good to see you on Sunday, and I was just spending time with this camera here each week. We've all heavily contributed to Zoom video communications and their booming business, and we've been restricted with being with others in a way that we've never anticipated or, or could have prepared for. Ketty and I were fortunate enough to travel uh, back home about a month ago for a wedding, and that was the first time we were able to see our families this whole year. Um, so one way or another, we've all grown intimately in understanding what it means to be with people because of the sheer lack of it. We've all realized what a toll it takes to be apart from community and interaction, just human interaction, and it's either made us complacent or anxious. Being with others just means so much more now, and people take precautions to be with people, whether it's wearing masks in the sanctuary, whether it's you know family members getting tested for COVID, um, and we take these measures to... We take these measures because we've realized that being with people, being with people in person is worth it if it can be done safely, whether you may be staying at home out of concern for yourself or others, or whether you're out and about hugging and kissing everyone. This year has really put just a spotlight on the value of being with others. So then what a great context at the end of this year for us to then consider what a magnificent word this is in our text today. Emmanuel, God with us. This is the word that we hear all the time during Advent season in song and in sermons like this because really there's no clearer picture of God being with us than the incarnation of Jesus Christ, flesh and blood, fully human, to live among us as a man. But as many times as we've heard that word Emmanuel or the phrase God with us, or as many years as we've celebrated the truth of Christmas, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ through the season, we sure do carry a lot of unbelief that God is really, truly with us. What does that actually mean to you? God is with you. What significance or bearing does God being with you have in your life? 
And so as we study this text today, I want to suggest three implications of what Emmanuel, God with us, ought to mean for Christians. God with us means God's power is with us. God with us means God's promise with us. And God with us means God's purpose with us. So first, God with us means God's power with us. Ahaz is faced with these two nations teaming up to take down Jerusalem. Raisin from Syria and Pekah from the northern kingdom Israel, they formed an alliance to attack Judah. Verse 2 says that Ahaz and his people, their hearts were shaken like trees in the wind. God tells Isaiah in verse 3 to meet him at this upper pool area. You see, Ahaz was already making preparations for the battle. He was securing his water supply, making sure that he was taking care of his people as a king. So seemingly, it's a wise thing to be doing in the face of oncoming forces, enemy forces, preparing for a siege. But God engages with Ahaz directly where Ahaz has taken things into his own hand to tell him what we see in verse 4. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. The verbiage here in the Hebrew reads more like, be careful to keep quiet, do nothing, and don't be afraid. So it's not just a matter of be careful and be quiet, but it's be careful to be quiet quiet. God is telling Ahaz, wait on me. I got this. I'll take care of this. He goes on in verse 4 to tell him, these two guys, these two nations, they're nothing. They're smoldering stumps that are already dealt with. And then verse 7 and 9 goes on to detail how these nations will ultimately fall in God's timing. And God is actually giving Ahaz a glimpse into what he's planning to do with them. I mean, what a gift that is to be able to see into what's coming ahead of you and to know what's happening. And how does Ahaz respond to this? Well, in verse 12, we see his brief response. He says, well, I don't want to trouble God with this. His lack of faith is exposed as he has placed his security in his own hands, by taking it into his own hands, by making his own preparations. And and we we know through the other narratives in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings that he's laid down worship to other idols and other gods and other kings. And so these passages detail how his lack of faith was really growing as a king. And he turns to the king of Assyria rather than the king of all creation He turns to pagan idols in Damascus to bring him good fortune instead of the God of the universe who is directly showing him a good future for him. He is, as described in Chronicles, walking in the way of the kings of Israel, failing. But we look at this man, this king, and how easy is it? How often do we find ourselves falling into the same lack of faith. You know, we, we tend to measure our problems as Ahaz did. We assess them with all of the knowledge that we have, all of the wisdom that we might have, all of the emotions that are wrapped up around it. We begin to filter what we can bring to God and what we don't. We often say, bless this meal. 
Lord. That's something easy. God can definitely do that. Let's pray for that. We often turn to God to pray for travel mercies anytime we travel. Anytime we go beyond city limits, we say, God, keep us safe. I feel like you can do that. Let's pray for other people's illnesses. We're not dealing with it ourselves, but let's pray for other sick people. God, I'm I'm not sure that God will absolutely do it in the way that we imagine it, but I think he can do it. Let's pray for it. But when things really start falling apart, when everything in life seems to be an uphill battle, when you feel like you don't have help, when the problem seems impossible to navigate with anything short of a miracle, when your heart is shaken like the trees and the wind as Ahaz and his people were, the times that perhaps we need God's help the most we decide that, you know, maybe this might be too big for God. This seems impossible. Maybe he's a little too distant from me right now. Maybe I'm a little too distant from him. He doesn't seem present with me in this struggle. But as it was with Ahaz and as it is with us, God in all his power meets us where we are He met Ahaz directly where Ahaz was making preparations for his people for the battle, securing his own allies. He met Ahaz in the midst of his planning and said, wait a minute, settle down a bit. Be quiet and wait on me. Wait to see what I'm about to do. I'm with you and I got this. I will handle this. When we measure our problems and fail to compare it to God's mighty power, we begin to harden our hearts towards his work and, conti- and start relying on ourselves. And as Christians, we must learn to see our biggest and most difficult problems, the impossible problems with God's power in view. And as you look to the radiant power of God, the things of this earth start to grow strangely dim. We loosen our grip on our plans to trust in the work that God is actively doing. Look with me to verse 11 and then to verse 14. And notice how the tone shifts here. God is speaking through Isaiah and Ahaz. And, and, and Ahaz, or God is speaking through Isaiah to Ahaz. And Ahaz doesn't seem to be responding to it. Verse 10 says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And then verse 11, he says, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ask me, God is saying. Ask me and let me show you what I'll do for you. And then we jump down to verse 14 to see God change his tone. And he says, you know what? The Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not asking for it, but I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to show you my full power anyway. God is going to do the impossible. You think that a virgin woman can't give birth, so I'll do it. You think that I can't overcome these two armies ahead of you? And their attacks, they're already smoldering stumps. I'm done with them. There's no brokenness too broken for God's power to restore. There's no suffering too painful that God's power cannot heal. There's no problem too big nor sin too deep that God's power cannot rescue us from. Believing in this mighty power of God is a part of what it means that God is with us. 
it means that we start admitting that our understanding of reality might be faulty, might be tainted. And in the midst of our faultiness, we will shake like the weak branches that we are. And it means that we start recognizing that there is a greater reality in God, in all his power, that he is constantly at work to accomplish his will. God with us means comfort, that there is nothing that happens in our lives and in this world that is beyond his power. Like Ahaz, even when we refuse and retreat from God, his power is still at work. And he is faithful to accomplish his work that he has set out to do. And because our God is forever faithful and unchanging and all-powerful, that leads us to this next point. God with us means God's promise with us. God with us, Emmanuel, means God's promise with us. We all believe that God's word is true. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Isn't that right? Isn't it? <laughs> is it weird to do that at a Presbyterian church? Um, but God's word is true, no matter how we are. This means that everything God says is. It just is. It's almost not enough to say that it's reliable. I know that's the language that we use, but our language falls so short. Like a Ford F-150 truck is reliable until it isn't. So go beyond that with me. God's word isn't just reliable. It is that completely, but it's so much more. God's word is reality. Whatever God says is. Whether we recognize that to be true in our reality or not. Verse 7, Isaiah speaks authoritatively because God is speaking. And he says, thus says the Lord God. I mean, no clearer way that God communicates to his people than when he actually spells it out for us. And listen to what he says. He says, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Meaning that the invasion that Syria and Ephraim are plotting will not stand, will not will not work. And he goes on to lay out how these people will cease to be a people soon enough in God's time. God is speaking into existence a reality that Ahaz could not imagine or comprehend. He couldn't picture it. He couldn't calculate how things would end up that way based on what it looks like right now. He couldn't get beyond seeing his God as not just a helpful guidance but one who determines all reality. This goes hand in hand with God's power because there isn't anything he can't do and he will ensure that everything he says is. When God spoke, let there be light, there was light. And when God spoke that Ephraim will be shattered from being a people in verse 8, they soon cease to be a people within those 65 years through the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions and like this, every word of God is a promise because it's either already true or is true today or will be made true in God's time. So when the Bible speaks of Jesus returning to restore all things to him, 
and establish a new heaven and a new earth to wipe away every tear and to make death no more. No more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, suffering, or any former thing that is a result of sin and brokenness. All of these things are promises. These aren't just nice Christian sentiments. It is simultaneously a reality today and a promise for the future. It means that God has spoken, so it is this way. And he will make it fully real in due time. This is why when we hear the words Emmanuel, God with us, carries so much beauty. It addresses our past, our present, our future in a way that no other promise maker can make. It is entirely reliable and trustworthy and true. The moment he speaks it, it is true regardless of our circumstances. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. How glorious, how beautiful that is. And I'm not sure how much Ahaz ultimately witnessed in his lifetime. And we know that even with Ahaz's reluctance towards God, and even outright disobedience and rebellion towards God, we know that God's word was still true and his promises were kept. We know that the gospel has been good news for our lives. If you know Jesus in this way, to know that God's word is true so that we can trust that his work is great and that we don't have to strive for righteousness before God, but that God with us, Emmanuel, is at work in keeping his people Emmanuel for God's people is God saying to us, I have been with you all this time. I continue to be with you and I am with you this very moment. And I will be with you to the very end of the age. God with us means God's promise is with us. That promise then gives us purpose because it shows us God's end goal and he invites us to participate in that with him. And so finally, God's, God with us means God's purpose with us. What is God's purpose in all of this? What is he doing? Well, in the remainder of the chapter of our text and for much of Isaiah's writings, we see a lot of judgment, a lot of doom and gloom. We get glimpses of hope, though, in seeing God's purposes through it all. You see, God's judgment is absolute. It's total. He affects crops, the livestock. He affects politics. He, he determines abundance and lack. He affects every area of life in his judgment. And we celebrate that because this is good. 
because God's judgment has always been, is, and will continue to be the way that God brings about his kingdom. He is perfectly holy, and Isaiah himself witnessed this pure holiness as recorded in chapter 6, the prior chapter, and, and he was brought to utter shame at his own unholiness. God proceeded to atone for Isaiah's sin with the burning coal from the altar. His judgment brings about purification, and purification makes sinners to be able to dwell with God. So God's purpose in all of this, even in the judgment, is in fact restoration. Reconciliation of his creation to himself. Restoration of his purpose for humankind, which I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism spells out so succinctly and wonderfully. And we know this well. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God is ever at work to accomplish his purposes. His purpose for creation namely mankind that are made in his image, has always been to have this kind of intimate and loving relationship with them. Our relationship to God, our relationship to one another, even how we relate to ourselves and the rest of creation, all of it has been distorted and affected by sin. And God's purpose from the beginning has been to restore these relationships. So what does he do? What does God do? The Lord himself went ahead. Despite Ahaz's reluctance, he promised a sign in the virgin birth of a child named Emmanuel, God with us. He himself took on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived this life. This life, I mean, can you picture this life where it probably took him longer to figure out how to walk or run than it does for dogs. This life where he had to be a helpless infant, completely dependent on others to feed and tend to his every need. This life where he faced people who opposed him, accused him, despised him, and mocked him, and outright hated him. This life where no one recognized or realized his glory, and he struggled and toiled and ultimately bled and died on that rugged cross. He lived that life and died this gruesome death so that he could be for us that burning coal for Isaiah, the atonement for our sins. He, by his broken body and spilled blood, has made us pure. He gives us his own righteousness, his perfect righteousness, and he takes on our sins. And we know that the story doesn't end there. He then rose again from the grave on the third day and was triumphant over death and sin once and for us, once and for all. And he invites us into new life in him and with him. God himself really did give us a sign. He began with us while we were still his enemies. And he extended himself to us to say, I am with you. You know, as I prepared for this sermon and this text, I couldn't help but think of Jesus' parting words to his disciples recorded in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this last line, so sweet. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promises his constant presence with us. Author and pastor Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I cannot recommend enough, um, he puts it this way. And he says, The Spirit is the continuation of the heart of Christ for his people after the departure of Jesus to heaven. It's the continuation of the heart of Christ for his people. His work has not ended. And the presence of his Holy Spirit with us is a testament that he is constantly at work in us and through us. I also looked at the ESV Systematic Theology Study Bible. It's pretty new. It came out recently, and that's been a cool resource to look through. Um, But they have an article on the Holy Spirit and had this to say. John Calvin was right to argue that as long as Christ is outside of us, all his achievements provide us with no benefit. But if we are united with him, all that is his becomes ours. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings such union about by his secret working. And so the rule of salvation is the rule of real estate. Location, location, location. The Spirit relocates us from being in Adam in all that sin, to being in Christ. God with us is dramatic. It's beautiful. It means that we can now be found in Christ. Christ has defeated death and sin once and for all. And this defeat over sin means that God will one day restore our broken relationship with the rest of creation This means that there will be a day where we no longer complain about the July Tucson sun or those pesky javelinas or mountain lions. This means that God will perfect our imperfect relationships with one another, whether that's our spouses, our friends, or friends that we've, or people that we've fallen out with, or people that sit across the aisle and vote for the other party. This means that God brings reconciliation to our relationship with him. This relationship that we desperately need. That you and I now have unimpeded access to the God of all creation, God of power and promise, and that we can bring all of our needs, all of our worries, our sorrows, all of our joys directly to him. God with us means that we can rest in his power that we can hope in his promise, that we can live out our lives according to his purpose. And God with us means that, you know what, when we falter in walking in that purpose, he is still doing the work. He is still faithful and he will continue to be faithful. Emmanuel, God is with you.